Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Echo Podcast. Just to introduce myself, my name is Ravan and my co-host Sunny. Hi. Uh, and today we are joined by a very special guest, the head of the School of Computer Science and Engineering at UNSW, Aaron Quigley. I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, I'm Aaron Quigley. Um, I'm originally from uh, Dublin in Ireland, but I've worked and studied um, all over the world over the last uh, 47 years, I guess now. Um, I started studying computer science in Ireland uh, and then I went on to do some work in Japan, then I came back to work in Germany, then I came to Australia to do my PhD, then I went to the States a couple of times to work there, then I came back to Australia, then I went to Ireland, then I went to Scotland, then I came back to Australia, then I went somewhere else which I can't remember now and then I came back to Australia again more recently during the pandemic days. So I've been sort of around the place for uh, quite a long time. (laughs) Um, And we're just keen to get to know you a little better and give the listeners a better idea of who you are. So maybe to start off, we'll jump into maybe your early life and how you got into programming and computer science. Was this something you've always been interested in? Yeah, I think so. Um, my, my father had a shop um, and I used to work in his shop, uh, what was called a newsagent in Ireland. I used to work in his news agency um, part time. And when I was there, uh, I used to see a lot of uh, kind of problems uh, in, in the shop, but just, you know, keeping track of the money that we had, keeping track of the stock that we had. And then I remember when I was very little, uh, we got our first home computer. And <laughs> it's kind of sad now that one of the first programs I built for the computer with my brother was a database for keeping track of uh, stock and keeping track of money and keeping track of prices, because I thought this might be something that would be useful for my father. Uh, many years later, I discovered that um, uh, that Blaise uh, Pascal uh, in the uh, in France had uh, done something similar for his father. That he had actually identified that his father, who was a tax collector, was having difficulty um, performing all the numerical calculations that uh, Blaise Pascal's dad needed to to do as a tax collector, and that uh, Pascal basically des- devised a machine. Uh, uh, a physical device to actually help with the additions and the subtractions and the multiplications that his father needed to do. Uh, he actually tried to commercialize this object. It was called a Pascaline. It was a spectacular failure as uh, technology goes. But uh, so I guess people, lots of people probably are inspired to get into computing by the opportunity to do something for others and to see uh, to see problems that they think you know computation might might solve, but I was kind of I was hooked from a very early age. Um, not not so much really in gaming actually. Uh, we did have games on our, our home computer, but it wasn't really the gaming that kind of drew me to it. It was the it was really much more the the programming and the solving problems with the computer, uh, and using it to sort of identify uh, interesting patterns in data and things like this. Um, so yeah, so since then I've actually I've never really been. A gamer, and I know a lot of people maybe get into computer science through being interested in gaming, but that was never my path into it. So, so how did you learn how to like code up this database? Yeah, yeah. Well, so that was actually funny as well. My my dad had um, magazine subscriptions that would come into the shop, and when the stock was being returned, uh, what the uh, 
what the ma magazine manufacturers would do is they would just basically ask him to destroy it. Uh, and before it was being destroyed, I'd get the chance to read through things. So we actually it was kind of some early magazines on programming that actually kind of caught my attention. And I was able to get access to some of that material because um, in my local library, we didn't actually have any books on programming. In my school, my primary school didn't have any um, any classes on programming. So it was really just from the kind of computer magazines that were remnant stock that I was actually able to find uh, the information to actually put together. But ended up being quite an elaborate bit of code for a database, I have to say. Um, and I suppose one of the things I remember about it was that the, the amount of effort that actually went into creating the, uh, the algorithms and the data structures to actually hold all the information and then actually put it out to tape at the time and then to read it back in from tape, it was quite an elaborate uh, program for at the end, the actual functionality that the program actually had was reasonably limited. And there was a lot of stuff that you, as you can imagine, if you've, all, if you've, you've written code yourself, you know what it's like. Um, sometimes it can be a bit disappointing that the easy things are hard and the hard things are easy. Um, but once, once it actually built the basics of it, it was actually quite interesting to be able to start building in things like search and then being able to kind of compare sets of records. Those were actually quite easy operations to do. But yeah, it was literally just you know programming magazines and, and the, my kind of access to that sort of source of information. That's really what I, how I was able to start doing programming back in the day. So what would you say your experiences in terms of computer science were during high school maybe? Oh yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, so my school, we were lucky. We actually did have a, a computer room, and unfortunately, I think like many schools, uh, the computer room was heavily underutilized, um, and often the the use of the computers uh, in there were very much tied to simple forms of education. So, the math class, uh, mathematics, uh, would use it for doing some, um, you know, plotting of data or for some. Um, visualization of information, and then the geography class would use it for uh, searching for information or for kind of displaying information that came in. But there was nobody really that was using it for doing um, computer science or computing in any way. So I actually got permission. Um, so I'm trying to backtrack here to kind of explain why the way my high school was set up. Um, you basically got into different streams across four, uh, across four uh, grades, effectively. So when you came from primary school in Ireland and you went into secondary school, you got put into one of these three streams, or one of these four streams. And if you got into the lowest stream, you started out doing woodwork. And if you got into the, into the thir third stream, you started doing, um, sorry, the fourth stream, you started doing metalwork. Third stream, you started doing woodwork. Second stream, you started doing music. And first stream, you would start doing mechanical uh, drawing. This was the, the the, the, the talent sort of pipeline that they'd kind of established. Uh, when I was in primary school, and I really was quite bored, I wasn't very challenged by the, um, the curriculum, I wasn't very challenged by the, the work that we were doing. So I wasn't actually a particularly good student when I was in primary school. But when I got into secondary school, um, that's where I, I, I'd say I, I flourished because it was very, it was, everything was fascinating, everything was a challenge. Um, learning you know, foreign languages, uh, learning all the different sciences, um, doing kind of advanced work in history and geography, uh, doing kind of advanced work in mathematics. This was all, it was really, really challenging. So even though I entered in the third stream um, and I actually started out doing woodwork, I then got, after the first year, I got moved to the second stream because of my academic progress and my performance, I should say. But that, of course, meant I had to give up the woodwork. Um, and I didn't want to give up the woodwork, and my woodwork teacher didn't want me to give up the woodwork because I put so much effort into it already. So he said, look, if you are willing to give up your lunch times, um, we'll keep doing woodwork together, and you'll study, and you'll do it for your, your junior examinations. 
and that basically took me down this path of always being in school. So I would always stay every single lunchtime. I would always stay late in the evenings to work on my, my woodwork. And because I was always there, then I started getting interest in the other features that the school had, like the computer room. So then I was able to ask the, uh, the principal to say, look, can I actually, can I use the computer room out of hours when it's not being used by other people to actually do some software development and do some programming? So that's actually also how I got access to the, the computer room that we actually had in school. And then, of course, by the time I got after second year, no, after third year, I forget which it was, then I moved into the first stream, so then I should have actually changed something. So each year I, I moved up the streams because of my progress, so I jumped from three to two to one. So I was, by the time I, I left school, I was in the top stream. Um, but of course, along the way, I had to you know, start woodwork, and then I had to start, I had to keep on going with woodwork. Then I had to do my music, I had to catch up on a year, and then I had to get into doing mechanical drawing, and then I was always sort of, I was never in one cohort, but because I, I, I knew the school well, and because the teachers knew me, I was able to ask for access to resources like like the getting access to the computer room, being able to do programming in there. So maybe just an interesting question. What was the first programming language that you learned? Or the first one I learned was basic. Yeah, it was basic for the uh, BBC Micro. Um, that was what we had in school. Actually, is, is that even true? No, that's probably not true. Um, I remember doing something like Logo where in primary school where we had the, the physical turtles and you were actually able to do physical control um, yeah, that was actually where we also got a bit of programming experience. My, my primary school was, was connected to a teacher training college in Ireland. Um, so the teachers, uh, the international teachers who would come would, were actually coming to do um, teaching experience and they would come into our school to learn how to teach students basically. Um, and as part of that, so I think we had slightly nicer facilities and slightly nicer equipment than other schools necessarily uh, because the, the students would come in to learn how to teach in our environment. So I think yeah, logo. Um, logo with programming the robot that was probably the first computer programming language that I, I learned for yeah and that was maybe when I was six or seven I think so you've seen that like pretty much your whole life you've been programming mm. or involved with computers sure. have you thought about ever moving to a different field is that ever been something you've that's crossed your mind Yes, actually, yeah. So I did. Um, after, after college, um, when I was, I'd been offered a, a PhD scholarship to stay in Ireland. Um, I mean, I, I think one thing I should probably give some context here is that uh, when, I was, um, when I was a teenager, so when I turned 15, my mother passed away. So I was quite a young man when my mother died. And then in my first year in college, my father was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and then he passed away at the end of my first year in college. So by the time I was just entering second year in college, both my parents had actually passed away. So my kind of connections to Ireland were kind of diminishing rapidly. My eldest brother had left to move to England. We're quite a, the Irish are quite a, um, a migratory uh, group, large diaspora around the world. So my, my connection to my family had kind of been diminished. I only had one brother living in Ireland. So when, um, when I was finishing college, I did a, a computer science degree, what's called a BA mod in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, I did my fourth year project with a very strong research group. And then they offered me a PhD scholarship to stay. And I was trying to decide whether or not to go into industry, uh, to go to work in a consulting firm, uh, to go to do the PhD or to uh, travel the world and see something different. Now, um, before that, in third year, um, I'd been working in Los Angeles for a computer company as a software developer. And when I was there, um, I, I was given the opportunity to just quit my degree 
and stay and uh, become a VAX programmer using a programming language called TOLUS, which was for report development and generation. And it was a very tempting proposition because the amount of money I would have been earning at the time was probably something like $85,000 in 1993. So that was a lot of money for this kind of software developing job back in the day. Um, so I was thinking then of quitting um, and just going and doing this job, uh, buying a boat, living in Marina del Rey, and then living this sort of Californian <laughs> existence. I had a green card, um, so I could have easily just stayed, and I, I didn't have to go back to Ireland. I could have just stayed and worked there. Um, but I remember talking to some of my colleagues and some of the older software developers, and they all did give me good advice that finishing your degree is very important, and actually having a degree and having that kind of both the credentials but also the experience of, of doing that kind of work. So at that point, I did think of sort of just jumping out of being a computer scientist and just becoming, you know, a straight, you know, software dev without a degree. And then at the end of college, um, I had the PhD opportunity to go to stay in Ireland. But uh, I then decided I would I wanted to experience something else of the world. And because my parents weren't alive, and because I only had one brother in Ireland, I was kind of I was very free to to pick different options. And one of the options that came along was to go to teach English in Japan. And uh, my, one of my honors supervisors had had some students who'd done this, and he recommended this program to me. I applied. I didn't think too much about it. Um, I got talking to people about the opportunity. I met some of the people who'd actually been doing this before. And then I, I, just, I moved to Japan, and I became a teacher. And I, I lived there for two years, out in the middle of uh, nowhere, in a place called Sagaken, which is sort of between Fukuoka and Nagasaki. It's a small um, prefecture. And then I lived on, the, on a peninsula on the very edge of that prefecture in an, an area called Hizencho. And then I studied in a very small set of schools called uh, Erino Mukushima. Interestingly, since then, uh, when I lived there, there was about 10,000 people living in this area. Now there's only about five and a half to six. And the three schools, two of them have closed um, because the population in Japan is aging and the number of people who need schools are diminishing in these rural areas. So that was one of the times in, in life I thought about not going back to computer science, that I'd, I'd enjoyed traveling and I joined teaching English. Um, but I discovered very quickly when I was there that it was quite boring, <laughs> that, that just this job didn't, that wasn't particularly challenging, and that all the things I'd learned to my computer science degree were kind of wasting away and I wasn't actually getting to use them. Um, and the, the, sort of the, the tool set that I'd actually developed in my research, in my, uh, the courses that I'd done, none of that was actually being drawn upon. And I, I felt that I wasn't really making the sort of impact on the world that I'd hoped I would. Uh, so that was probably the second time in life where I, I thought about ditching computer science completely and, and jumping into something different. Uh, but no, since then, I think, ever since I, started, I came here to Australia, I went to Newcastle University to do my PhD. Um, and ever since then, I've been kind of hooked on it. I just see the power of computation. Um, and it's, it's an amazing field to be in, to be honest, because so many other branches of science and engineering and the creation of knowledge are tied to um, the physical world, whereas a lot of what we can do in computer science is tied to our imagination. So we can think of, we can invent entirely new ways of processing information, entirely new ways of looking at data, entirely new programming languages, uh, entirely new forms of interaction. And that's quite an amazing field to be in, that you're, the limits of your imagination we can basically express in terms of computation and interaction. You mentioned um, at the very start and just then that how you were like pretty much all over the world. Yeah. But what was your experiences like? Would you, would you do it again? Would you recommend people to do it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's things I've done in my career 
that now if a PhD student came to me uh, at my age now, I would be much more cautious about taking the set of opportunities that I've done. Um, so I'll give you one example, which actually ended up coming back here to Aust when I came back to Australia. Um, so after my, maybe I should give some sort of timeline. Uh, so I'll, just, I'll, I'll try to give the context so people kind of understand the, the picture here. So I studied in, I grew up in Ireland, Dublin, at the north side. <clears throat> and then I uh, went to work one summer in Germany. Then I came back. Then I went to work in Los Angeles for another summer. Then I came back, finished my degree. Then I went to teach English in Japan for two years. Then I traveled across Southeast Asia. Then I came to Australia to do my PhD. During that time, I went to live in Texas to do an internship. Then I came back, studied, finished my PhD. Um, then I went to work in Massachusetts in uh, Mitsubishi Electric Research Labs uh, beside MIT. Um, at that point, I was offered a job to become a faculty member in the University of Victoria and also to come back here to work in the University of Sydney and actually also to work in the University of New South Wales. That's a different story. I, I chose at that time University of Sydney over the University of New South <laughs> Wales. That's, a, that, 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 that's another story. Um, that, interesting. That, that makes two. I just have to say oh, yeah, for the record. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, it's interesting how these kind of things happen in life. You, uh, you, you, you look at a pot potential uh, possibility and then you kind of step away from it and then you come back to it later in life and you're glad that you didn't do it at that time time, but it's given you an appreciation for what you actually have the opportunity to do now. So then I worked in, um, I worked in the University of Sydney then uh, for a few years, then I went to Ireland uh, to work as a lecturer, then I came back to work in the University of Tasmania, then I went to the University of St Andrews in Scotland, and then now, now I'm here, so jumping around quite a bit. Anyway, um, one of those places was when I was in uh, Mitsubishi Electric Research Labs in Boston, and at the time I got, actually I ended up getting four job offers, that was, was quite interesting. I got one offer to stay in the lab and to not become a research scientist, but to become more of a research technician where I was going to be doing software development for the research scientists. Number two was to get a faculty job in the University of Victoria, permanent academic position, and it would have turned into, it would have been an assistant professorship, and eventually associate professorship, eventually a full professorship, or to come back to Sydney and to become a postdoctoral research fellow in either the University of Sydney or here, the University of New South Wales. And I chose Sydney. I didn't chose the faculty position. And now if I had a student, if one of my PhD students came to me now and said, look, I can go to an industrial research lab or I can do a fac permanent faculty position or I can take these two, three-year postdoc jobs, which would you take? Um, at my age now, knowing what I know and knowing how difficult the job market is and how competitive some of these jobs are, um, I'd, be my, I'd give that person maybe more cautious advice to say, look, the faculty job they're hard to get, you can basically build your academic career there. Um, so now I'd be more kind of risk adverse at this stage, but I, again, I would, give the, I would give the explanation to the person as to why I took the postdoc positions over the, um, the permanent faculty job. The reason then, and it's still the same now, is that the opportunity you get as a postdoc to uh, build up your research skills, to build up your experiences, and to broaden out your knowledge base is huge. Whereas once you become faculty, you have so many other responsibilities. You have teaching commitments, you've got administrative commitments, and um, you just have to be part of the, 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 the large academic workforce. And the constraints you have on your time are, are much heavier. Whereas when you're a postdoc, you have a lot more academic freedom, you have a lot more time to devote to a kind of a broader range of questions than you necessarily do as a, as a faculty member, a starting faculty member at least. Um, and that was, the, but that was a risky decision, you know, like take, turning down two permanent jobs to take a contract job. 
um, that was risky. And I, now at this age, I'm not sure I would give that advice, but I would, I would explain to somebody my age back then that like, this is my rationale for doing it. And I, as I think of it now, I think the rationale is still good. It's just, it feels quite a, quite a risky proposition to turn down a permanent job for a temporary job. So you spent a lot of time um, working in the industry. Mm. You also just spent a lot of time teaching. Mm. Which do you prefer? I love working with students. I mean, that's the reason I'm in the university. Um, even now, uh, during these kind of COVID days, uh, I think there was a group of you recording some other videos, yeah. and I was just leaving my office on one Friday night, and I could hear you all doing the recording and laughing. And it's, it's just so kind of joyous to hear the, the sound of student laughter after all these days of us all being kind of, um, uh, kind of locked away from each other. That, that kind of uh, that enthusiasm and energy and the excitement that young people have for the subject area and just for being in university, for working together to kind of you know, to better yourselves, to study, to, to improve your knowledge. That's very exciting. When you actually see it, um, when you hear it, and when you experience people who are excited about their learning it's a it's a very it's a very energizing thing so to me it's the students are the reason why you you stay working in a university um, your enthusiasm powers gen, kind of generates a, an energy that is is is, uh, is insatiable to see it's, it's it's quite something yeah you spoke a lot about how like when you were young you really like to be challenged so as the head of school is that something you try to push and like uh, and like the curriculum or like the courses like the course requirements, just like the course design? Course design. So, I mean, when you step in from the outside, uh, you have to understand there's like, there's a huge body of work that's already gone into the development of the curriculum and the design of the education that's actually gone on here. Um, so when you come in as a new head of school, the most important thing to do is to l listen and learn about what's going on and then to ask people about what could be improved where there are you know, weaknesses and where there's uh, things that could actually be refined. Um, and so, for example, we're doing that this Friday. We're having a session um, to kind of reflect on our experiences of student engagement through this pandemic. Um, some of the stu reps are coming along. Um, some people from other parts of the faculty are coming along. Some of the, um, not Mark, not Mark um, Hayden is coming along to talk about being a casual lecturer. So, this kind of, so the, the, the very important thing for me is to kind of listen and learn and understand where the strengths and the, the relative weaknesses are. Um, I think there's already a lot of things that we do here that are really quite excellent. Um, I, I discovered each and every day you see, uh, you know, I see requests for, you know, research equipment coming in. I see requests for teaching equipment coming in. Um, I see people talking about um, some of the assignments that are maybe are, are too difficult for students. And then like, you know, how the lab sessions can actually be, you know, provided and the feedback can be given. Um, even in my own course that I'm, I'm teaching one of the, um, the NG1811 uh, Python for, for engineers, the kind of introduction to computation for, for engineers, and just seeing how the students learn in that. Uh, what, I want, what, I, what I need to do is to um, kind of understand where we are before making grand pronouncements about how we sort of change everything. Uh, because you don't, want to just, you don't want to kind of break what's working. You don't want to disturb what's, uh, what's working. Um, and I'm, I'm all about, you know, sharing between my colleagues and getting them to listen to each other's experiences and give feedback to each other um, to understand what is working well. 
And I think a lot of what we actually already are doing is, is quite challenging. Um, but I definitely, there, there's scope to do more. And uh, I, I think at the moment where now is, now is actually an interesting and a, and a kind of a good time to learn from what's been going on and to actually reflect how we will change the curriculum and how we will change the form of education and teaching in the future. So. Do you think that your introduction to the school and the goals that you have can be easily implemented or do you think it will take time for you to get across what you want to achieve? It'll take time, yeah, and that's okay. Um, you're trying to, so you, you come into an organization like this, um, you know, it's a world-renowned university. It has built up, you know, its teaching and research and physical infrastructure over decades. Um, people, the alumni that I've met from CSE are justifiably proud of the uh, learning experiences that they've had, the degrees that they've gotten, um, what they've been able to do with the experiences they've, they've achieved. And for me, I want to basically build on the success of the school create new opportunities for my for the students, for my colleagues, and for new people who are coming into the school, and also for, for the alumni to engage with us. And then to basically steer us in a slightly different direction. So not just stop the ship and then you know pivot 190 degrees, or 180 degrees, I should say, and go a different direction, but actually steer the ship in a slightly different direction. Um, and there'll be bits, there'll be times when some of it will seem quite radical. Um, some of it will seem incremental, uh, but you have to basically build up trust with your colleagues. So at the moment, I'm spending a lot of time listening and learning and watching and understanding how things are, and also looking at other schools, um, and then basically contrasting it with my experiences elsewhere, and then making small changes. But it's my, my job isn't really to just kind of make grand pronouncements and then say, look, we're now, we're steering in this direction. My job is basically to give the tools and the, the mechanisms to my colleagues. So that's pointing out things where we can kind of inject new ideas, giving resources to committees, uh, coming up with new support mechanisms for students, coming up with new um, programs that we could actually deliver. Even just, you know, doing things like, looking at the curriculum that we actually have. Like we have a number of undergraduate degrees, we have a number of postgraduate degrees, we have a number of online courses, reviewing all of those and actually seeing what's working and, and refining it for the, for the future student uh, cohort. Um, but then also providing opportunities. I'm very passionate about, um, and I've always done this in anything I, when I do my teaching, is I try to do a lot of research-led teaching, which means I want, I, I don't know, when I was an undergraduate, maybe my lecturers did this, I don't really think they did, but I like to weave in my research into when I'm teaching. So when I'm explaining some simple programming construct, I can just, you know, I can relate it back to when I worked in industry and I can say, look, I remember programming this for the first time and I remember the mistakes that I made and I remember this, this interesting thing that you can actually do with this construct and this is what it looks like when you're doing it in industry or here's this piece of technology that we're doing, um, and actually here's how we would, uh, here's how I've seen it kind of done in research. Even even the the course that I'm teaching now, um, I I tried to find a, a topic that would be related to COVID that would be of interest uh, for the students for their very first practical. Um, so I ended up doing uh, peak detection, which is something that's commonly done for in data analysis. Um, and of course, it's, it seems like quite a, a simple and kind of trivial problem, but 
when you actually look at it, and when the students actually are they're developing their code right now, the deadline's tomorrow, I'm hoping they're all doing really well. <laughs> um, haven't seen anything explode on the forum today, so that's, uh, that's, that's a good sign. Excellent tutors here, great, great supports. Um, but just getting the students to appreciate that, the code that they write now, even though it's, it's a first year assignment, they'll never maybe use it again. But just looking at the data, just looking at the problem, and then actually specifying their solution to it, and then mapping it to say, oh, that seems like what might actually be happening inside of a Fitbit. Or actually, that might be a scene, that might be what's going on inside of a, um, an EKG monitor. That actually maybe is what's going on inside of other, some other uh, data processing stream that's actually looking at these at these peaks to identify problems. And then actually pointing them at research papers to say, here's a research group right now which is trying to identify peaks in data to use that to correlate between suspected patterns of, of uh, COVID outbreaks and some other um, piece of data. And then say, look, what you learn in first year, what you learn in this small assignment, what you learn after just knowing a little bit of code after five weeks, you can build from there up to supporting the people who are trying to solve this pandemic. And that's, that's the power of computation. That's the power for any engineer to realize that there's a straight line from that while loop. There's a straight line from that um, NumPy expression. There's a straight line from that you know, slicing of a two-dimensional array. There's that straight line from like being able to process data and stream data. Straight from there, right up to the people who are today trying to solve you know, uh, climate change, who are trying to you know, address you know, finding cures for cancer. There's, it's not many hops away from what you do in first year to being supporting people who are doing this, you know, high-end, cutting-edge research and development. And I, that's what I find quite, you know, I'm quite passionate about that and kind of weaving that into my teaching. Um, and the more I kind of learn about what my, my colleagues are doing, I see that all over the place. I see... Um, where people have tried to take, you know, pieces of their research, like in human-robot interaction, what, what people like Wafa and Claude are doing, and um, people who are doing things in their ethics, you know, stump, stuff like Wayne is doing, and trying to actually fold their research into the teaching and kind of ground it in a way to make the students realize that what we're teaching you is not some abstract concept. It's not something that was completely divorced from reality. It's I tried to find a real data set. I tried to find a real problem. I try to find a chain of connections between what I'm doing now and people who are doing this data analysis out there right now trying to solve the problem in COVID. And that takes effort, like to find those lines and actually to make it something tractable for a student so they don't you know, waste you know, lots of time and it's not beyond their capabilities, but stretches them. Uh, that's, the, that, that's the challenge when you're educating people. Just maybe touching on a bit about your research. I know you did a lot of human-computer interaction. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe tell us what that involves and what that is exactly? Um, so in a nutshell, it's the, la it's the last 30 centimeters between the device and the human brain. Um, so if you think right now, I'm, I'm sitting opposite you and you're sitting in front of a computer and there's an air gap of probably about 45 uh, centimeters from your eyeballs to the computer screen. Um, you're actually holding the computer, so there's actually zero distance between your <laughs> physical, um, your physical uh, touch and the device. Your ears are probably about as as distant from the device as your eyes are. And um, that air gap, like how do we actually get information from these devices to us, and then how do we actually take our ideas and intent and interests and actually express them back to a way that the computer can understand? Now. That, take that idea of devices, be it uh, something on your wrist, something in your hand, something in the physical environment, a device that you actually have. At the moment, there's a gap between us and the computer. 
uh, which means that we have to somehow express in a way that the computer can understand our intention. So that might mean we're using the keyboard, we're using the mouse, um, but there's so many other things we can do. There's so much other um, ways we can express our uh, intent to a device. So right now, devices can actually start picking up our physiological information, so our heart rate. They can start picking up our location information and then using that. They can pick up our eye gaze and start using that. So there's all of this information that we, um, we exhibit, which a computer could use to understand our intent and our purpose and our goal, isn't necessarily being used. Um, so right now, like if, you wonder, if you're interacting with that computer, you're occasionally using the mouse and you're using the keyboard a little bit. But the fact that I'm talking to you, the fact that we're having this conversation, is completely oblivious to the computer. Like it knows nothing about this. It's, it's not part of its um, repertoire of understanding us as, um, as, as, um, as partners in this space. So, so the nutshell is how do we get information from our heads into the device in a way that... Uh, takes more of the channels of information that we have available on the output, and then actually how do we take the information from the device and give it to us in more and more effective ways. And when you think of it like that, suddenly everything becomes an interface to the computer potentially. So the stuff we've done, um, I was giving a talk on Friday, we, we've done interacting with objects as a form of interface to the computer. So being able to recognize the fact that I'm holding this bottle versus holding this mug that can be an input to the computer. It, it's not like the same as pressing a key on the computer, but suddenly I pick up something and then I, position, I reposition it or I, I, I make a, a motion of it or I touch it. I move things around. That actually can become an input to the computer. Likewise, when, I'm, uh, when the information is coming back to me, there's so much, there's so many things in this room that could be computer controlled. Like there's the lighting information, there's the environmental information, there's the blinds, there's the positions at the desk. Um, I have colleagues who have... Uh, in, in Japan who were doing uh, remote controlled uh, furniture basically so the furniture can actually rearrange itself and that positioning of that information can actually be an output for the computer so there's a rich there's a rich range of things the computer can do to give you information and there's a rich way there's a rich set of ways that you can give information to the computer and it's kind of exploring the the, the marriage of those two that is is of interest to me in human computer interaction I think maybe one thing that maybe immediately comes to mind when you talk about that is privacy mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts on that because like i think it's very cool that my computer or phone could do all of sure. these things but i don't want it doing sure. it at the wrong times right yeah so. well that actually comes down sometimes to the sensing that people use so there's there's a huge body of work um we go back to the you know 50s and 60s there was a lot of work done in computer vision so for a lot of time a lot of these sort of um these forms of you know, intelligent interaction were, were predicated on having cameras in the environment or cameras in phones or cameras that you were wearing or cameras on your head or ubiquitous cameras. Um, but since then, um, people have actually used a lot more other forms of sensing that don't necessarily rely on um, using cameras to actually understand the world. Uh, so in some of the, the work that I was just describing there, we use radar and the radar isn't something that you could easily con reconstruct uh, an image of the environment from. Um, so you're not, you're not accidentally going to be seeing somebody because it's not a camera sensor. But then you've got sensors like audio, um, infrared, uh, mo motion sensors. So for example, uh, we have uh, one, of the, one of the recent papers we had was we, we were taking a smartwatch like this. Your, your listeners can't see it, but just imagine a smartwatch on my wrist. And on the edge of the smartwatch is a camera. 
Okay, and the camera's actually there for taking photos. So you're, you're supposed to put your, your hand down and then tap the screen and then that'll take photos. Uh, but of course, what we realized is that the hand is actually blocking the camera. So when the hand is actually normally moving or moving around, the camera's being blocked. That seems like a problem, but actually it's an opportunity. So suddenly the camera can see the back of the hand. We can then look at the back of the hand and we can think about all the tendons, the web of veins, the skin, the bone deformations. As you're actually moving, so, I mean, you can, you can say to the, the listeners to say, okay, if you look at the back of my hand, you think of the pattern that you're seeing. Does that look different than when I'm holding the water bottle than when I'm holding the mug? Yeah. It does. Okay. That's the insight. Okay. The insight is these two different objects, when, I've, when I'm holding them, the pattern of the skin, the bone, the tendons, the web of veins, everything on the back of the hand is different. Okay. Now, do that processing. We're using computer vision now. If this was deployed, would you use computer vision? Probably not, okay? But it shows the potential that what other types of sensing could do. Sensing that is, has less you know, privacy um, issues associated with it. Uh, to really deploy that, um, you're gonna, in, in some countries, there are regulatory hurdles over what you would actually do by having you know, cameras constantly monitoring your hands and then monitoring the environment around you. And what you'd actually want to show, and what we did in the paper is that we did this um, uh, sort of what's called an, an encoding decoding stage, which basically shows how in hardware, we could take the camera data, we could pass it in, we could process it, and we could cut out anything that's not within sort of 10 centimeters of the hand, basically. So you could just say like, yes, it's a camera, yes, it's being processed, but we've put in these, this hardware safeguard that means that the data that's coming from the camera can never, you can never see beyond a certain zone. And that's, then that's what we, you would actually, uh, that's what you would regulate and that's what would be, would be checked. Well, that's, I think it's very interesting to me. I think like there's a lot to be explored. Oh, it's huge yeah. in that world. Um, but moving on, I know that you have chaired many international conferences. Indeed. Can you tell us a little about what they actually involve and why you've chaired so many and why you enjoy <laughs> it so much? Why have I chaired so many? Hmm, that's a, a question you could ask my husband. Because uh, <laughs> generally, it's all. Um, uh, it's personal time generally is what actually is spent on this kind of volunteer activities. So when you're an academic, your, your time is kind of devoted to um, your research and then work. That, what that means is you're working with your, your honor students, your master's students, your PhD students. Uh, you might have some funded projects. So then you've got research assistants, you've got postdoctoral fellows, uh, you might have international collaborators, you might have industry collaborators. So a lot of your time as an academic is spent working with your research team, your peers. And then, of course, you also have your teaching. And there'll be quite a lot of time preparing teaching, make, marking exams, making assignments, marking things, meeting students, answering things on the forum. And then you've got a lot of administration that you actually have to do. So typically for many academics, a lot of their day, their day job is already fully occupied by those three tasks. Um, so when you take on the task of being a conference chair, often it's something that you're doing uh, because you have a passion for it and you see it as a, as a service to the community and it's something that you actually find personally rewarding and valuable and it kind of goes beyond the day job. It's something that you have to spend your personal time to do. And often when I've been chairing these conferences, it is something that I've actually had to spend my personal time doing because there's just not enough hours in the, in the regular workday to do it. Um, and I've done it for a long time. I've started out, um, uh, probably the, one of the first things I ever did organizationally was uh, I was the editor for a workshop that was actually held here in Sydney. 
and I was on the organizing committee for that and that was back in 1998 in 1998 and um, that involved finding simple things like finding the restaurant for the workshop dinner booking it um, finding a, a publisher for the proceedings uh, collecting all the papers putting it all together, setting out the agenda for the program, and then basically managing the budget to make sure that what we were asking delegates to pay was going to be enough to pay for the tea, the coffee, the lunch, the space, and the printing of the proceedings, and enough money then to pay for our keynote speaker to come in from Georgia Tech, and also to pay for the, uh, the dinner at the actual conference. Now, since then, of course, that was a workshop of about 30 or 40 people. Since then, I've gone on to do, and the current conference I'm doing will have anything from three to 5,000 people involved in that. And that has a budget of like 2.5 million for the event. It's a, it's a, massive, it's yeah. a massive difference. <laughs> and it's also the time scale over which you plan these events. Um, so some events I've done with 100 people and I've only had a week to organize them. That's kind of rare. Normally, when you're organizing two, 300 person events, you're spending up to a year preparing to get it, to get it done. Um, but of course you do it as a team, you're not doing it alone. Yeah. So you find people who handle various sections of the program for you. Um, but your question was really around like, why, why do it? Um, it's again, it's, a, it's similar to like, why work with students? It's that enthusiasm and excitement and the opportunity that you see when you're, when you're shaping a conference program, when you're bringing together a set of volunteers, you realize that by doing this, it's bringing the researchers and the next generation of researchers together. And that if you put in the effort, that the, the impact of your, uh, your time will, will kind of reach far beyond your own career, that you'll have made connections. And often you, it's often really quite, quite invisible. I mean, it, to this day, I still meet people who, who've been at conferences that I organized and they thank me for it and they say, oh, if, I hadn't, if you hadn't done this, this wouldn't have happened and I wouldn't be at this stage in my career. And it's this, it's this unknown number of you know, uh, connections that can actually be made at a conference that it's, it's often worth, it's worthwhile putting in the energy and the effort to actually do it. It's very stressful sometimes um, and I, no, so, no more so than this year. Um, so last year, this big conference that we have, this Kai conference, normally has two and a half, three thousand people physically go to it. The last time it was physically held was in Glasgow. And this year it was supposed to be held in Honolulu in Hawaii on going to Asia was the, the idea. Like coming from North America, going into Honolulu means a lot of people from Asia could easily travel there and then going, going to Yokohama where it's supposed to be next year. Um, but it had to be cancelled at the last minute because of the COVID situation. So now we're facing into planning this conference for next year. And it's gone from being a lot of work to being an incredible amount of work. It's because <laughs> instead of just organizing one conference, I'm sort of in my head planning three different conferences in parallel. So there's the, everything goes back to normal conference. That's basically incredibly unlikely. I mean, between now and right. then, yeah. we're not gonna be back. Like even if there was a vaccine tomorrow, the rollout of a vaccine globally is a very complicated endeavor yeah. and it's just not gonna happen overnight. So it's gonna be a, a year, six months. We're gonna be living, we're gonna be in some sort of transition period no matter what happens. There's the other, the other end of the spectrum, which is no physical event. We just go 100% virtual. We just decide that's it. We can't take any risk. But the third option, which what we're, we're planning is this hybrid event. So the hybrid event is basically where a lot of people can still come together because of travel restrictions, because the, the health situation has improved, because they are actually able to move around. Social distancing will work. Um, here in Australia, 
you know, we're, we're in a very good situation in, in New South Wales. Um, I look back at my family in, in Ireland and in, in the UK. I look at some of my colleagues in the USA. The freedoms that we have here, like we wouldn't be doing this in many yeah. places in the world. Like yeah. we're really close together. Um, we're still 1.5 meters apart. And everyone's <laughs> managed their social distancing. Um, I'm, I, I know that if that the work that we're putting into the, the hybrid conference, it could all fall apart. You know, come come April, May of next year, there, there could be a moment where we get a resurgence somewhere. Um, we can't all physically travel to Yokohama. We just have to go to a fully virtual conference. So by building the hybrid conference in the way where we're putting a lot of energy into thinking about how the online experience will work along with the physical experience, the energy that's being spent at the moment is really thinking about the physical, the, the virtual experience, right. connecting, to the, connecting to the physical experience. If come March, the, the physical experience disappears, the energy we're putting into the virtual experience will still work. Right. So there's a chance. So that, that's what makes it a, a, a lot more complicated. The thing that it's kind of is weighing on my is weighing on my shoulders all the time about this, is trying to come up with a budget that's flexible. Because as I said, two point five million dollar budget. That's predicated on uh, an assumption about so many people coming, so many registrant delegates of a certain type at certain times. We have sort of twenty seven different types of registrations for this conference that you can basically get. Because you, there's different times, you yeah. pay different amounts of money. Are you a student? Are you not a student? Are you retired? Are you not retired? It's a complicated you know, model. And then you've got that financial model, and then it has to work for the hybrid, and it has to work for the virtual. Interestingly, the actual cheapest of all of those is virtual. Like if we just tomorrow, if we just ditch the idea of having a physical get-together, we just said, look, no, let's just go fully virtual, it would be incredibly cheap, like yeah. super cheap. Of course, all the previous commitments that we've made to like renting the space, we still have to pay for that. All the people that we've hired to deal with the physical space, we still have to pay for that. That would all disappear. Um, and that's a sort of, a, that's a similar thing to a lot of organizations are facing right now. Um, you know, if universities didn't have to have buildings, it would be a much cheaper endeavor than what we're doing. Um, all of the physical space that we have here on campus, if we didn't have to provide that, the cost of the education could be quite different than it is now. But is that the experience that people want? Do people want to sit at home for four years, zooming in or getting on teams to actually to get their education? Is that why you came to university? And I don't think that is the case. I think um, one thing talking with friends who are like graduated and working full time is that a lot of businesses nowadays have realized working from home is very doable okay. so a lot of businesses um, that my friends work for they're considering giving an option you can either work from home or work from the office and it allows the businesses to downsize their buildings and they don't need these big uh, yeah. like 100 floor buildings mm -hmm. in the city they can downsize to a much smaller building and it's much cheaper that way so i think I think COVID, although it's a bad situation, yeah. it's shone a lot of light on what's possible. That's right. And that's exactly what we're trying to do on Friday when we're having this kind of reflection on what's worked. Because I don't think when you have something bad that happens like this, the worst thing to do is to just, you know, grit your teeth, close your eyes, grin and bear it, and then hope it's over. And then just once it's over, run back to doing exactly what you were doing before. That is not how we evolve as a species. That is yeah. not how we improve ourselves as educators. That's not how we improve ourselves as researchers. We have to, the, the world has thrown us this 
curveball. We have to learn from it. We have to see, actually, are there good things that we can take from this? And that's the set of questions, you know. Um, one of the first year stew reps is going to come along and talk about this to say, look, what, what, is, what from this has been good? Like, what from this is actually is something that we shouldn't lose after, if there is an after. I mean, there's a lot of assumptions about that there's going to be some after. <laughs> there true. might not be an after. That's this true. might be the world that we're actually living in for the next, until we all, you know, pass this mortal coil. Um, hopefully that's not the case, but are there good things that we can actually learn from this? Um, and then where do we actually adopt those? I think it's interesting in terms of, uh, like, university and school setting is that I think everyone's very used to having that face-to-face teaching mm-hmm. and I think like for me personally I prefer it a lot more because it just feels a lot more real and I get into especially during high school I would walk into school I'm like right, for this next six hours I am in a focus mode because yep. I'm forced to learn like I'm here I might as well learn it but it's at home I'm like I'm sitting in my bed or sitting at my table but my table is next to my computer and like mm-hmm. it's like it's very easy to get more distracted than I would normally get yeah. at university. Yeah I mean there's definitely a reason why we have um, you know schools and universities set up as places of learning. The, the physical act of coming together is quite important. The time box that you put the work into is quite important. Um, surrounding yourself like the reason a university the reason we don't have like individual schools of engineering scattered all over Sydney the reason we're physically together is so that opportunities and learning will happen that things can be found easily there's shared resources like libraries there's shared access to physical spaces that things can happen serendipitously here that can't happen if we were all scattered all over the place and even what you're talking about there, the, what, what's, what's become very apparent to me is how poor the, the, the human-computer interaction um, interfaces have actually really kept up or aren't, aren't as evolved as they should be. So you're, you're using this keyboard uh, screen and mouse that you have in front of you now, and that's a paradigm that you know, we've had for, what, like, when, was the, when did the Alto come out? 19, about 30, over, over 30, nearly 40 years now. And um, it hasn't massively progressed there. Yeah. And what you're talking about, the idea of you, you walk into a room, well, what's the equivalent of that now? Like double-clicking on Teams, double-clicking on Zoom, and then you're suddenly there? That's not the same thing. Like there's a huge amount of physical experience. There's a huge amount of physiology involved. There's a huge amount of you know, eye contact with other humans, you know, being able to sit one place versus another. That one place that you sit, that might have been the reason why Atlassian got formed because those two students sat in that particular location at that particular time. Yeah. There's all these serendipitous things that happen in the physical world that you just don't easily get in the online world. But equally, when you actually do look at the physical world, there's a lot of barriers. Um, there's a lot of barriers to for people who are disabled, and they don't get the same access to physical spaces as the rest of us. And that's something to think about, that suddenly, well, actually, by moving to this more online world, it's actually leveled the playing field for a lot of people, people who have caring responsibilities, who can't travel, uh, people who have, you know, you know, don't have the budget to travel to, and suddenly you, you realize that, yes, it's, it's negative for some, but it actually opens up learning opportunities for so many others. And that's, I think that's what we need to think about. We need to think about that our, the technology is still quite rudimentary for supporting this type of interaction. Like just, just now, like look at the, the, of course, people who are listening to us can't hear this, but I can, I can see you, 
you're gesturing, I can see you, you're, you're kind of, your head is nodding at certain times when I'm saying certain things and that's giving me feedback to like think about my answers and like, am I being clear? Am I rambling on? Sorry, I do, <laughs> I do tend to ramble on, sorry about that. But I'm getting a lot of body language and feedback by being together. And I can tell you, if, if the three of us were sitting on a Zoom, we would not be getting that, I can tell yeah. you, at all. There's a huge amount of yeah. subtle interactions that are, be, are lost when we're online that we actually do get when we are face to face. Well, I mean, I think one thing about it is that when you're online, it's it's very easy to separate who you are as a physical person as opposed to like a constructed online persona. Like it's a bit more apparent if you're like looking at things like gaming platforms where like your identity is literally like artificial. You like create a gamer tag or like whatever. But I think like, yeah, during this age of like, we're not even going to uni, we're just going to Zoom calls for everything. I think the hardest thing is just like meeting new people and like getting to the stage where it's like, I met the person, yeah. I'm going to add them on Facebook at the bare minimum so I can talk to them again. Mm-hmm. And like overcoming the barrier of, oh, well, if I just met them in person, like I'd be able to like see them, I'd be able to talk to them, I'd like know who they are, I've like interacted with them and I'd be more invested. Whereas like online, it's like so hard to get that trust. S- yeah, same amount yeah. of investment or trust, yep. as you trust. say. Yeah, it's, a, it's an emotional thing. We, um, we are animals. We are evolved. We are higher order than maybe a, a lot of the other animals on the planet. But at the end of the day, we are social beings. And a lot of what we've, a lot of our skills and techniques have, have been built up around doing that type of social activity in a face-to-face world and then mitigating or um, trying to replicate it through uh, pixels on a screen we see it's not doing it. We see it's not actually giving us the full range of understanding of human emotion, of understanding human intent, um, all the physical cues that you actually get, uh, how the you know how the, how the audio moves around this environment that we're sitting in right now, the fact that there's background noise, the fact that we're kind of physically distant from each other. All of these things matter um, in ways that we all we don't quite fully understand. Uh, but when they're not there, you suddenly you 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 miss their absence. So I guess I can ask for either of you: Have you added somebody since March new on Facebook? I mean, I've been forced to for one five three one because it's a group project. But uh-huh. I feel as if like yeah, the course is a, is definitely responsible for like not necessarily responsible, but like it's def it's definitely like one of the like the the course design is definitely one of the factors in determining are you actually gonna meet new people from huh. this course yeah that's oh, what wow. i think like courses that like force that like force group like group work they kind of force you to like well if you don't have them on facebook how else are you going to talk to them like were well, you really going to like email them there's like oh good good morning i'm writing to you like no but courses that there was no group work that you just show up to a shoot mm. and like that's it it like you like i like in those courses i haven't added a single person Yeah, I think one thing I noticed was like generally most people, I don't think they prefer group work, especially in a school setting. They prefer to do it individually because it's just relying on themselves. But I've noticed for my courses, if there is group work, I've enjoyed it so much more during COVID times because I'm personally a social person. And in my courses where there is no group work, I just... I sit there on my own in my room and it's like, it's just, it's kind of sad. It's just kind of lonely really. Cause That's I just, so true. Like I the, just sit yeah. there, do my work. And then 
once I finish, so for example, if I have a tute and I go in my tute, I, I finish all my lab questions and then I just leave the tute because there's no other reason for me to be there. Um, but then I do a double with commerce and I had a management uh, assignment and it was a group assignment. It was all fully online. And like I joined this group and we would all go into our breakout rooms. We would all turn on a turn on our cameras and we would be just talking to each other even if it's not about the assignment like initially it might be just that bit of banter and just hello get the like everyone flowing and then we get into the work but it's just it's the closest thing I've got to talking to people since COVID started so I think group work in an online environment is so vital because well, I think it depends on the person because I think maybe introverted people tend to prefer to be on their own anyway. But for me personally, like I needed that social interaction with someone because I was going insane on my own at home. So I think um, COVID's interesting in the way that that's changed a lot of things for me personally because uh, during the first, I think I only went to like three weeks of uni this year in terms of at the very start of the term and during my tutes, I talked to people like, hi, how are you? talk to them randomly there was no group work but it was just they were there and they're sitting next to me so I might as well talk to them but then as soon as I went online I had no obligation to do that or reason to do that yeah it's the it's the this is the these are the kind of challenges but it's very interesting to hear you you say this how group work because I've in my whole career um I've done I think I've I've taught 30 nearly 40 modules over the course of my career now I, I think probably so like thousands of students and across the board students hate group work I mean <laughs> just with a passion <laughs> um, however when alumni come back to talk to me um, or when they when students who have just gone for a job interview uh, I ask them okay what kind of questions did you have and then their employers are talking to them or they're going to talk to they're going to do a PhD or they're going to do some research and they I say what kind of discussion points and they tell me the examples and invariably invariably it is the group work stuff that they talk about because people want to know how do you get the best out of others how do you work with other people because we don't work alone I mean, it's the very rare computer scientists that will spend the rest of their career working in isolation it's yeah. the vast majority so you have to work with others and that even though it's forced upon people they never like it they always complain I mean, I've had some horrible situations to deal with as a lecturer over the years uh, with student groups going, going, uh, going wrong. Um, but you, you, just, because it, just because people don't like it doesn't mean that we should shy away from it. Either students should shy away from it or faculty shouldn't shy away from, from setting those. But you've given me an idea now for my, for my Eng1811. I'm, I'm not, not going to change it to a group project, but I'm going to set up some group uh, support study sessions because I think what students actually need is the... The discussion time together and maybe some of them would be tutor led so you've given me some ideas but actually i think in general if it uh, if it works well in in these kind of times of being online i think it actually says it's something that actually we should just be doing more of in the university anyway regardless because we 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 need to work together you know we need to work together online we need to work together face to face and um, we're always going to be um we're, we're always going to have this sort of the the, the, the challenge of communicating our ideas to other people and then encouraging them to do something that they don't necessarily want to do but we know collectively is the is the right thing to do just touching on maybe how how you feel mm. uh teaching edge 1811 mm. how do you feel about how covid has affected your teaching yeah it kind of makes me sad in many ways um 
I know there's some there's there's a lot of benefits uh, from this new environment that uh, the recordings are available so students can come in and rewatch me um, when they're studying so that's that has benefit there um, students who can't physically get to campus um, they can come in um, people can you know watch and uh, listen and learn and then you know follow along with the the, the coding examples and try it themselves and it allows for a lot of different kinds of flexibility. Um, but as I said at the beginning, um, one of the reasons I came, one of the reasons I stay in academia is for the students. And at the moment, um, I just don't feel as if I see the students. I don't engage with the students in the same way. Um, I don't hear their ideas. I don't get to meet them after the class. Uh, you don't have that kind of enthusiastic first year who comes up and is pushing the boundaries of what they're trying to do way beyond the, the, the assignment. And then you can encourage them to think differently and to, to challenge themselves. Um, you, because it's put into this box, the reason to stay around afterwards um, is kind of, is lessened. So like once the Zoom, once the lecture's over, people, one thing I do notice now, of course, is a lot of the students say thank you at the end of the lectures, <laughs> which they never did before, which is really quite nice, because that's, it's one of the few things that you feel as kind of human connection. Um, but otherwise, it's, you know, I'm talking into a camera, I'm trying to juggle between, you know, Blackboard Collaborate and um, Spider for showing the coding examples and my slides, and trying to juggle back and forth between it. And uh, sometimes when we do some live coding with one of the tutors, that there's a little bit more kind of back and forth, then there's a little bit more banter. Um, but otherwise, it feels very it feels very disconnected from the student cohort, um, and I feel kind of a little sad, I have to say, because it doesn't feel like the same experience that I had when I was in college, and I feel like you're you're all kind of missing out on something. But it's a it's a it's an interest it's an interesting experience, it's interesting times, and I, I think we're, we're all going to learn something from it. Um, but yeah, I, just just now I just I just saw the the the, the midterm uh, feedback and. Uh, that reading what the students said about like what's good about the course and what's bad about the course. I speak too quickly, apparently, um, <laughs> which I need to work on. Well, it's interesting, if I speak too quickly, I mean, people can rewatch the lectures and they can actually slow me down. I was told by other students that they, I speak too slowly and that they actually speed me up. So you, know, you, can't, you can't please everybody. I, I try to enunciate clearly. That's one of the things I learned from being an English teacher in Japan is to speak clearly and not try to avoid using idioms. So even if I do speak quickly, at least people can, um, can rewatch it. Um, in future times, what I'd like to be able to do is, of course, make these lectures more accessible. So actually running, um, running some AI uh, speech recognition as I'm, like otter.ai, for example, running that live and then actually having that to analyze what I'm saying and then check the audio recording versus the captions and then making sure that it's, it's all lined up for accessibility reasons. This is something I want to do for in the, in the future versions of the assignment, future versions of the course. Um, but yeah, I feel yeah I, I feel kind of disconnected because I mean I've come back to Australia after being away for ten years. And I'm teaching a class with three hundred students, and it doesn't feel like it. It feels like it's me and the camera and the screen, and the one the one or two students. But but when I read these bits of feedback from the students, that's when I feel like I'm hearing the student voices. But it's not like the same as seeing your faces like it is now. I have to say, so it's it's a little it's a little sad for me. I find just on that, have you found it more difficult to teach people actually how to program? Because I feel as if like it was a really interesting thing when you said you learn from a magazine. Because, mm. like, program is something that where it's like when you first learn, it's 
you kind of need like someone else who's done it before to be like yeah with besides you know, like right. oh that this is the yep. particular problem in your code that's like, right yeah that's what i was doing with my brother yeah. when we were learning to program together he he knew more and i knew a little bit less and then that was definitely the the the, the important thing and um, what's good in the course that i teach so i took this over from um john tong one of the um like one of the senior lecturers here um he had built in a ton of coding examples so you'd you'd only go through three or four slides and then suddenly it'd be like okay now let's look at numpy 2 file 2 and then suddenly on screen i have my slides on the left i have my code on the right and then basically i'm i'm going to i manipulate something I try and break something, I add something in, and then I just go back to Blackboard Collaborate and say, okay, what's gonna happen? And it's like silence for a moment, and then somebody says, that won't compile, and you're like, okay, why? And then someone says, well, you did this wrong, or that's wrong, or this is wrong, and I'm like, okay, good. What I'd really like to have is that I'd, I'd like to actually be able to go into that environment and pre-script a ton of little mini quizzes, but I can't do that in Blackboard Collaborate. The only time I can actually build a, build a poll or build a quiz is when I'm in there. So I can, and I can build one, I can't build like 10. Like what I'd like to, like these tools are completely inoperable. They're, it's such, it's yeah. so broken. I mean, the, the, the fact that we actually were able to pivot in March and actually go online and teach, and we were actually able to do this form of education, it's a miracle. It's just, a, it's a miracle that actually, it was, we were able to string it all together because the incompatibilities between these tools, it's appalling. Like you've got Blackboard Collaborate, which is its own little black box. Then you've got like Zoom or Teams, which is its own black box. And then you've got like, PowerPoint or Keynote for slides. And what I want in Keynote is I basically want to be able to say, okay, this thing, fire up this poll, fire up this thing over here, and fire up this thing over here. So that actually when I'm at that particular point in teaching, it's like a, it's like a play. I basically want to say, okay, oh, this should trigger this. And then I want to want to have all the students be doing their coding. And I want to see I want to see their, their, their 300 different instances of spider, and I want to see their outputs, just the output. And I want to see that visualized on a small little screen so that I say, okay, everyone now make this manipulation, press compile, and then I can see the results and see, you know, do we get 98% of people who get the right answer? Yes, cool, great, move on. Or do, is it like, is it scattered all over the place? Is, are all the answers all completely different? So I want to integrate everything so I can kind of throw out quizzes, I can throw out bits of code, I can listen, I can see back what their coding answers are doing. Like right now, like students email me bits of code and say, why is this not working? I'm like, oh God, this is a nightmare to try to figure this out. And the learning environment is, you know, a bit of forums, a bit of PowerPoint, a bit of Blackboard, a bit of Zoom, a bit of this, a bit of this. They're all completely isolated systems. They're not integrated. And the problem of integrating them is, I want to build my play my way of teaching in one particular form. The next person wants to do something different. The next person wants to do something. So there is no perfect technology. There is no perfect tool chain for allowing each of us to kind of combine it. And all we can basically do is we can look at what other lecturers are doing and going, that's cool. I want to I want to steal that. Um, I want to use that idea. I want it. That's how I want to teach next time I do this. Um, it, it is fascinating though, but I, I, I can feel myself frustrated. I'm sure the students in my class can feel myself frustrated when I'm trying to do something. I'm like, why can't I just like take this idea I have and just like sort of weave it out into the tools and then get back the answer quickly? Because I really want I want to ask them, you know, like is it A, B, or C? Like what is what is this? What's going to happen now? Because I think to me there's no better way to learn than to teach. And I think that the students could all start teaching each other 
and this is when I was a, when I was a teacher in Japan. This is what I used to do. I used to have these great like sort of mechanisms where, you know, we'd be delivering some content, and then I'd basically do something, and the students would all work in pairs with each other, and they'd all be teaching each other something because they'd be playing a game, and the game would all be built around the English language. And that's what I want to have in the programming module. I want to have a way to say, okay, 300 in class, right? Bang, do this. You teach him. You teach him. You teach her. She teaches her. They teach each other. Blah blah blah. And combine students in all kinds of little groups dynamically. But the tools that we have are just awful like they do do not support this kind of learning yeah. and it's all just you know zoom video chats with most of the students just like instantly turning their video off because they're as you said they're sitting in their bedroom and i don't want to be i don't want to be like intruding into their private spaces but on the same side like when i do see the students it's nice like it's nice seeing you now it's it's this is a nice engaging experience and, and it's not the same as, as zoom that's for sure and just on that we think it's like nice to be here as well like i remember like we filmed with Hayden last week, mm. and then I was like, damn, mm-hmm. like paid, like, we're going to pay like 50,000 yep. Australian dollars to come here, <laughs> yeah. might as well be able to walk through the damn door. And, like, yeah, and the university spends like so much time and energy making sure that this is a, a safe place and it's well, faci- has good facilities, and I'm looking at the budget for next year around, you know, like new teaching equipment and new research equipment. And the labs are set up, like, you know, outside the door, you've got all this robotic equipment that you need to physically be here for. Like, I've just bought some new equipment, some HoloLenses and some robot arm for some of my research to do. Like, all of this physical equipment that we, we have, that's not going to be available. Like, you can't, there's no Zoom session that's going to get you into a robot lab that's going to get you, like, interacting <laughs> with that. There's no Zoom session that's going to get you into a HoloLens. Like, there's physical things that we need, and that physical stuff is here in the university and the campus. And I think across the board, I think if you talk to any head of school, talk to any academic here, they are missing the students. Like, cause this is why, this is why I work in this job. Like, honestly, at the end of the day, you, you were asking at the very beginning, like, you know, why stay in academia? Why not go out to industry? Yeah, I get, you earn a lot more money in industry. Yeah, I may have got, I've done a startup and been like much more wealthy, have a much nicer house, et cetera, et cetera. But the enthusiasm that younger people, not even just younger people, just people who are learning, people who are actually studying something and you're helping somebody open their eyes, to the potential and the possibilities and suddenly like you see the lights go on and you see the people's people get it and they go oh that means i could do this you're like yep <laughs> it's like it is a it's a it's an exciting it's a rush of a feeling when you're educating somebody and, and it's the same in research like when you have that like problem and you actually can kind of distill it down into something that you can experiment with and test and then you can run the experiments and you can actually get the data and then you do the analysis and then you see actually yeah this does have an effect this is actually an improvement that's a rush as well. So you get all these little joyous moments as an academic, not every single day, not every single minute of every single day, but these little moments of joy that you get. And it generally comes from working with either the research students or the undergraduate students that you're teaching. That's, that's why we're here. And uh, as the head of the school, what are some maybe goals that you want to achieve? Um, so I said at the very beginning when I came that um, I wanted to make sure that in five years, so my tenure is five years long, that we can very clearly articulate to people in the region and internationally what's unique about the learning experience that you actually have here. Um, A lot of that's already there, but I have to kind of go back and focus people's minds on articulating that and explaining that to students, explaining to students to each other what's unique about um, UNSW and computer science. The second one is I think that the, the way 
the tutor pool and the way the demonstrators and the way the lecturers work together is that we have a lot of undergraduates. We have a lot of people who are involved in the teaching. And as I said before, no better way to learn than to teach. So all of those people who get the opportunity to be a tutor, that is an invaluable opportunity. So what I want to make us do is to provide more support for that, to provide more opportunities for that, to make sure that it's a very nurturing environment. So I think that, uh, that type of, you know, second years helping first years, third years mentoring second years, you know, master's students, PhD students, that whole like ecosystem of learning, if everyone is teaching and supporting everybody else, that's a very powerful nurturing environment. Um, another thing I want to do is think about more uh, scholarly activities, which means some of the assignments that we can set up uh, can be very disconnected from reality and they can feel kind of very you know, trivial problems. Um, in my first year, this course I'm teaching, the first one is around was around related to COVID and the second one is around biofuel production. Now, these are very real problems. You know, these are both, you know, thinking about how the tool, thinking about what you're doing as a computer scientist or with, you know, software development, how it actually impacts on the world. Doing that from first year, that's a real, that's quite a, it's quite a, a quite a, a burden to, to kind of to carry, and I think we want to have people think quite scholarly about the work that they actually do. And the final one is I want people to realize that you can go anywhere in the world and you can solve problems anywhere in the world with the tool chain that you actually get here with the, what you learn in computer science and engineering. And um, you can be called into international projects. You don't physically have to go there. Your experiences, your knowledge, your your the work that you actually do can impact uh, the world uh, at large. And um, so. The, the reason I put it this way is so that it's like it's unique, it's nurturing, it's scholarly, and it's worldly, and it should be easy to remember because it's built UNSW. Um, and that's what I want the kind of school to be known for in five years' time, to say like, oh yeah, that's a quite a different place to go. You do a degree there, it's different than doing it over there. You go and do research there, it's different than over there. And um, go there because the problems that the, the work that they're doing, there's a straight line from it out to problems in the world. And the students in UNSW are connected to the alumni and connected out to industry and connected out to governments in ways that other universities just aren't. Um, so I think it's taking what we have, taking the great environment that is already here in CSE and basically nurturing it and growing it and then kind of refocusing some of the attention on, on different parts of it. Um, it might mean we have new degrees in five years time. Um, I certainly hope that we're thinking differently about how we do our teaching and learning um, because even if tomorrow we could go back into the classroom, there's a lot of things that we've learned from this online environment that we should try to adopt. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting time. I'm definitely I'm earning my pay, that's for sure. Because sometimes sometimes heads head of schools are quite invisible people, and they're just you know sailing the sailing the ship down like calm waters because everything is just fine. At the moment, everything isn't just fine. You know, we are worried about you not having access to physical spaces to get access to certain equipment. We're worried about you not having the type of social experience that we think is important in a university. We're worried about you getting disconnected from your peers, getting disconnected from us, getting disconnected from the learning. Uh, we're worried about the fact that international students can't come across the border. Uh, we're worried about you know masters and research students not wanting to stay on to do research and engage and, and disconnecting. Because I think there's a there's a, there's a there's a there's a temptation here to say oh, everything is fine you know everyone's uploading their assignments everything's getting graded everyone's getting but that's that's the surface level i'm worried about what's going on beneath the surface level i'm worried about you know is there long-term damage that's going that's that's happening to the students and to their their experience of, of learning um, 
and that's what I, I'm, that's why we're trying to have these sessions on Friday and it's kind of con constantly coming up all the time to make sure that are we missing out on something? Um, is there something that we could do now to improve the learning through this, um, through this kind of environment, through this kind of situation that we're in? And how, how do we actually learn from other schools? How do we learn from the students? And listening to the students, that's the great thing about UNSW, is that um, uh, when you ask students for feedback, you guys are good at giving feedback. So <laughs> please give feedback, because we do listen. Like, as I said, like the, the instant my, my feedback came from my NG1811, I, I looked at it instantly. A lot of things I already knew. Two or three things was like, oh, excellent, I know what I can do. And that's already gone straight into the next assignment. I already changed the, the second assignment, because it's not going to be published until later tonight, just based on two of the, two of the observations that students have. So I, I love the feedback from the students. So when the student reps ask you to do these surveys, please do them. Uh, we do read them, we do listen to them, um, and we are trying to figure out ways to kind of integrate that into our into our teaching and uh, research maybe as a like concluding segment we like to ask the people we're talking to about different advice and tips mm -hmm. so do you think coding will be a universally taught skill um, I think thinking about computation should be a universally taught skill I don't think necessarily programming is the only way to do that. I think people need to, everybody in a university, everybody in modern society needs to be able to think computationally. I think that's important. And uh, what I mean by that is to be able to look at a problem and to be able to decompose it down into constituent parts and then to think about what would the data be that you would need to handle to answer this question? What would be the steps in processing this information? how could I bring together the kind of the tools to actually tackle this using you know, computer science and data? And then part of that might actually be turning that into code, but I don't think necessarily everybody needs to know how to code, but everyone, every, everyone needs to think computationally. Now sometimes the easiest way to do that is to teach people to code, because it manifests itself to say, look, this is what a loop looks like, this is what a data structure looks like, this is how you, this is what variables look like, so people kind of understand what's going on under the hood inside the computer, like how we talk to the machine, how we actually get the machine to process the information that we want it to process. So I think it's a good way of getting people to at least begin to think computationally, but it's not the, it's not the only way. Because um, for some people, they just don't want to program. And I don't think everybody needs to program. Like we've had, I just had a PhD student finish recently, and he built a whole environment around a visual programming language, which is domain specific, to allow psychologists to set up experiments. And he basically boxed up inside of a visual programming language, lots of computation, and they could drag things around, they could manipulate things, they could set up certain parameters and certain variables. And they were programming, but at a super abstract level. And they never saw code, but yet what they did turned into code. So they, they, were, yeah. they were expressing their ideas computationally, they were setting up what they needed, code was getting generated, but they didn't produce the code. And I think we'll, we'll see more and more examples of that, where code gets created, but kind of as a byproduct of what people are doing. Uh What's something that you've learned from across the many years in the industry, teaching, learning? What's something that you've learned that you would like to share with everyone? Uh, that a problem solved is a problem, that a problem shared is a problem halved. Um, that actually working with people outside of your own... Sorry, what was that one? I didn't quite sorry, catch sorry, that. Sorry, the first one was, uh, I was just talking about like how you share your like a problem... Uh, a problem shared is a problem halved. I think I said, but I was, I was, I was. What I really wanted to basically say is this idea of working with people outside of your own discipline. So, um, I've done lots of interdisciplinary projects, working with historians, working with uh, physicists, working with physicians, um, and just like teaching, 
trying to explain your ideas to someone else who has never seen computation, who has never seen what you're interested in for the first time, can be quite, can be quite challenging sometimes teaching. And, and likewise, when you're actually working with people outside of your own discipline, they ask very interesting questions. Sometimes they ask questions that are infuriating, just infuriating. Like, why, why do you do it that way? And if your only good answer to that question is just because, then you're not thinking hard enough about the question <laughs> at all. And that's, that's kind of, it's a bit shocking when people say, well, why, why are you doing it that way? Why do, you, why do you have to process the data that way? Why do you have to use that? Why do you have to use that mouse? Why do you have to use that you know, keyboard? Why do you have to do that? And you're like, look, don't ask that question. But you want that question. You need that question. Because that question pushes you to ask, like, yeah, why do we do it that way? <laughs> why, make, why assume that that's the only way to actually tackle that problem? And I often find, I've often found that people outside your own discipline really can ask those hard questions, um, which really make you reflect on what you're actually doing. Sometimes it's, it's insanely frustrating, though, because you've built up, um, you have a limited amount of time, you have a limited amount of resources, you have a limited amount of you know, hours that you can actually put into a project, and then you have a particular set of tools. So I'll give, give one example here. Um, we did a project with some historians around analyzing uh, text for um, shipping records. And the shipping records were basically being, were being used to identify where goods were being traded in the British Empire, or what was the British Empire. And that analysis basically then allowed us to do a visualization. And the visualization was trying to show where all the goods were moving around the world. Like, instead of looking at 100,000 documents, you just look at one visualization and then you see, look, where is the Pechacucha moving around the world? Where are the, uh, where is tea moving around the world? What's actually happening? Where was it all being shipped? Um, but then, of course, once you actually have your, your, your visualization tools and your visualization methods and your visualization libraries, it's, it, you suddenly, and the, the researchers in history uh, say, well, my, my question is this. Could we have a visualization that shows this? And I'd like to explore it in this way and do this and this. And then the answer to that question is, the tools don't allow it. The visualizations we have don't do that. But to actually answer their question would require years of software development just to try to actually tackle it. And we're not actually sure it's, it's possible. So it's the, it's the gap. Again, it's the sort of gap between the imagination. People have, have an imagined form of interaction with a computer and then what we can actually realize today. And, you know, the movies sometimes, you know, with the, with the fiction you see, you know, people, you know, sort of an if a student was coming in to study engineering now in, in university in, in UNSW and they were doing chemical engineering or they were doing um, civil engineering, they might imagine like, oh, I'm going to go to uni and I'm going to see there's going to be some type of Iron Man type of interface that I'm just going to be able to stand in front of a computer and in front <laughs> of me is up, gonna, up is going to come a three-dimensional model of the, of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and be able to spin it apart. I'm going to be able to deconstruct it with my hands. I'm going to be able to go in and do all kinds of analysis because science sci-fi sci sci has sort of engendered this imagination yeah. in people that the interfaces <laughs> we have should just be so far beyond what's actually possible. Those interfaces, of course, run into the limits of physics and optics and <laughs> all kinds of other things where actually having holograms in midair is um, challenging, shall we say. Um, but that's what people imagine. And that, that's good in some ways because that pushes the research and pushes the researchers and pushes people to go, yeah, we can, we're getting there. But it's far beyond the capabilities that we actually have today. 
Um, and with, with, with computers and with visualizations and some of the things we've done is the human imagination can conjure up quite incredible things that we just can't physically manifest yet. And then maybe as a concluding point, what's probably the best piece of advice you've received or something that someone said to you that's stuck with you over the years? Uh, listen more, talk less. <laughs> and do you, like, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but any reason why that stuck with you? Uh, I've always been too chatty myself. Uh, I, I like to talk. My mother said I could talk for Ireland. Uh, even when I did my meetings with all my new colleagues here, I actually used a bit of software called Jitsi, and it actually monitored the speech and actually told me how much I was talking versus how much other people were talking, <laughs> just to actually check myself, because I wasn't actually too sure if I was talking too much or too little. And I would be quite proud if, if I ended a conversation and I'd been speaking for 20% of the time and then been speaking for 80% of the time. I think the, the best I got to is I had one person I, I met with for an hour and they spoke for 98% of the time and I spoke for 2% of the time. Uh, but not, it's interesting, that's actually not a, that's a very coarse measure of an effective conversation with people because some people just don't like to talk and you actually have to do quite a lot of talking to get them to talk. So you have to kind of adapt your style. Um, but listening is a very powerful experience um, when you have so many great ideas to share, when, you, you have, when you're burning to kind of give your input, but you actually decide, I'm not going to share that now. I just want to see where this conversation will go. I want to see where this, I, this discussion will go. And when I work with students, um, master's students or PhD students, I, I often, I, I, I focus myself quite carefully on listening more to just let them to come to the realization as to what they want to do next. Let them work through the process. If I am there and I short-circuit it for them, they're never going to learn. I'm just going to be there for short-circuit it. The answer is always going to be, oh, ask Aaron. You know, like, that's not a good answer. <laughs> that's a bad answer. Um, the best answer is, Aaron, I've thought this through, and here are three different options. Wh which do you think would work? And I think we should go for B, and that's why. And then let them explain to you why they, what their thinking is behind it. So listening, um, listening before talking, I think, is uh, one of the best lessons I would have. But maybe for computer scientists, maybe that's not such great advice, because computer scientists are often quite, quite quiet people as well. Um, trust the opinion of other people. Um, don't be arrogant with your own opinions. Don't think just because you thought of it, it has to be the best idea. Uh, um, uh, they're, they're, they're good ideas come from everywhere. So I think that wraps up pretty much everything we wanted to ask you, Aaron. And I'd like to just say thank you, everyone, to listening for tuning in to another episode of the Echo Podcast. And a special thank you to Aaron for joining us today. Um, and yeah, that wraps up today's episode of the Echo Podcast. Thank you, everyone.